All right, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 14, please. Luke chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 1 through 24, and the message entitled, You Cannot Fool God. The ongoing message of Jesus is the kingdom of God and the need of responding to the gospel. He continues his trip down towards Jerusalem to be crucified. Jesus was sent to his own, the Jews, because to them was given the announcements of the coming kingdom and the Messiah, their personal Messiah. And in spite of all that God prepared the Jews for in the nation of Israel through the law and the prophets, the Jews rejected the arrival of the kingdom as well as the Messiah. Luke presents to us here in our text a dinner uh, with a religious Jew, a Pharisee, and it reveals to us three groups who will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's like a threefold extended telescope. Each proceeds from the previous one, as we'll see this. But it begins at a dinner in verses 1 through 24. Let me read here our text. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man um, before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him, and he healed them, and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into the pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. And so he told a parable that those who were invited, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more tolerable and um, honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you uh, and, him who, uh, and, he, and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you invite or invited, go and sit down, in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then he also said to uh, him who invited him, When you invite, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask, your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest you, they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, when one of them... Um, those who sat at the table with him heard these things. He said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. 
But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you that I have uh, to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so that servant came and reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the street, and bring in there the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper. Jesus dining here with this religious Pharisee reveals three groups who will not enter the kingdom of God. And they are as follows. First, the person having evil intentions, verse 1 through 6. Secondly, the person living by self-seeking ambitions, verse 7 through 14. And thirdly, the person rejecting the gospel invitation. He begins with the person having evil intentions. This is the first section of the telescope. The scenario is a dinner. This is the occasion. As Jesus often, as you know, he, he loved to eat. And the time of the event is simply indicated by the phrase, now it happened. Uh, remember, uh, Luke com, uh, compiled his gospel in this section from here all the way to 17 and 18. Not so much in chronological order, but in thematic uh, uh, unity. Uh, of, of thought. So he, he groups them in twos or threes many times, as we've seen. Um, there is no parallel passage to this uh, event from 1 to 24 in the other Gospels. Um, Luke is unique here. And notice the location is very specific as he went into the house uh, of the one uh, ruler here, the Pharisees. Um, the separated ones, remember, that's what they mean. They came out of the great synagogue after the the captivity, and they were protectors. Um, whether this ruler was um, uh, the one that rebuked Jesus for healing the woman in the previous chapter or not, we don't know. Uh, it, it seems unlikely. Um, but Jesus was always eating. This was a favorite pastime, as we've seen. Uh, he ate with um, uh, Pharisees, publicans, and sinners. Often we read. And Jesus, remember, ate at the house of Simon um, the Pharisee in chapter 7, and also with another Pharisee in chapter 11. Uh, so here we have now a third occasion with a Pharisee. And the purpose is stated to eat bread on the Sabbath. And Jesus just taught on the synagogue on the Sabbath day in 10, uh, 13, 10 there. Uh, remember when he um, healed a woman also, and, and, and uh, uh, he was objected to again. And Jesus now on the Sabbath, which really is really Friday, Okay, sundown. So the food has been prepared prior to sundown. Now it's all ready. And, and the supper here. But notice the motive for the invitation is indicated in verse 1, that they watched him closely. 
the phrase means to observe Jesus insidiously and scrupulously. Now, we already know the relation between Jesus and the Pharisees is they were always trying to trap him. They were always trying to fall, fall in him with the, with the traditional um, keeping of the law. And this word is used for the Jews who guarded the city gate to kill Saul in um, chapter 9 of Acts, verse 24. I mean, there's just, you know, uh, have you ever been somewhere where you're sitting and people kind of just looking at you? Maybe it's a family reunion. Maybe it's an awkward situation and, you know, and things aren't right. And, you know, you know, people are looking at you and, you know, that they're just waiting for you to do something or say something. You know what I mean? Um, this is the scenario here. Um, now, they don't know what Jesus knows, but Jesus knows everything they know. <laughs> so Jesus has the upper hand here. Uh, now, notice the reason being was that the Pharisees had planted a man here. This is the whole thing. It's a setup. Uh, who needed healing. He says, Behold, there was a certain man before him who had a dropsy. Now, dropsy um, is a, a medical term um, for retaining water in, under the skin and the tissue. And it causes swelling and great pain. And these individuals that plotted this man there because they knew they that Jesus always identified himself with the person of the greatest need. Uh, he was always, he couldn't stand by. He, he, he met the need of those around him. Um, it's the only time it appears in the New Testament, and, and there's no surprise to this. Uh, Luke is a physician, so he gives us this term. He's a medical doctor. Now, notice verse 3 through 6. The situation was turned on them by Jesus, as, as usually it is. Jesus knew their thoughts and intents of the heart. How do we know this? And Jesus answered. Nobody said nothing. <laughs> but Jesus answered them. This happened also at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Remember when the woman came in, the prostitute, and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair? I have something to say to you, Simon. Say on, Master. <laughs> That's in chapter 7, 39 and 40. This happened also when the Pharisee was shocked that Jesus didn't wash his hands after the uh, traditional ritual washing of the Pharisees in chapter 11, verse 37. Jesus knew his thoughts. Remember when they brought the man and tore down the roof and they lowered him down? And, and, and Jesus uh, said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, you know, he read their thoughts. I mean, Jesus knows everything. Notice Jesus confronted the religious men present. Jesus never let people slide. When Jesus didn't speak to someone, he was done with them. Herod and others. He said nothing. Jesus always confronts people. Something that you and I have to ask courage for and wisdom Sometimes people are too intimidated, they are too embarrassed, and they feel awkward that they call people out on things. Now, there's a place and a time, and depending who it is. But when people say things that are unbiblical, or people say things that are just also off the wall, or people attack Christianity, or whatever it may be, then you and I need to stand up and say, excuse me, I heard you say something, that's, that's completely wrong. And the, we live in a generation that people shoot their mouth and they're never called out on anything. Anybody can say anything today, except the Christian, except the conservative. Uh, but we need to take courage. Jesus did. 
These were the doctors of the law. He spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Uh, the lawyers interpreted and taught the law. And the Pharisees uh, oversaw the law to make sure it wasn't violated. Most Pharisees were lawyers. And, um, and the Pharisees were synonymous with hypocrisy, as we've seen before. The actor's mask of the smile and the frown. Now, their thoughts, notice in verse 3, an intense of their hearts were revealed by Jesus. They've said nothing, and he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, this is exactly what they're saying. I wonder if he's going to do it. Yeah, I think he will. He's not, he's not going to be able to just resist it. Put that guy, that guy is hurting. Look at how big he is. Look at all the water he's retaining. And you know how it is when people plot to set you up or whatever it is. We're, we're good at that. Our, our heart is bad. I am certain they were shocked at his words. Yet every time Jesus ate with someone, it seems that he always reveals their thoughts. <laughs> you remember Simon again, the blindness over his own sin there in chapter 7. You remember Martha worried about so many things in chapter 10. And then also later on in 19, we'll see Zacchaeus regarding salvation. Jesus had exposed their foolish interpretations and evil hypocrisy of the religious oral traditions that only allowed someone to sustain some injury but not make it better. So in other words, if you it was a Sabbath day and you're bleeding, they could put a tourniquet on or something like that, but they couldn't put anything to make you better. They have to wait till the Sabbath day was over. Well, that's a foolish law. Human need always rises Higher than any law. There's a law that says you can't go up to the vons there and just walk in, grab a loaf of bread and walk out. That's stealing. But if there's a, a disaster, earthquake, and everything is down and, and, and you're starving and you come by a store and there's bread there and you take some, that's not stealing anymore. Now it's survival. Okay, it's a little different. Okay, human need always rises above the law. But you can't go into civil society and just walk in and take something because there's means by which you're supposed to do that. Okay? Now, the Mishnah uh, was a traditional interpretation of the law and the Talmud was the interpretation of the Mishnah. So they had all these volumes as we've seen before and they had honored their interpretations above the law to circumvent the law of God. Jesus showed that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath in Mark 2.27. Uh, it was to rest, to recuperate, to think on God and not to put him in bondage. Seven times in the gospel, Jesus heals on the Sabbath um, over and over again. And there's no surprise to that because they were so critical about it. Um, notice the response uh, confirmed their guilt, but they kept silent. Now, if you're a parent, you understand this. You bust your child and you look at them and they just go, they don't say a word. They just look down. This is kind of what's going on here. They didn't say a word. They probably were so indignant that Jesus had busted them. How does this guy do this? Because they didn't believe he was God. <laughs> Notice Jesus cured the man of his dropsy. He took him, healed him, let him go. He seized hold of him. Made him whole. No big deal. Usual day at the office. Hmm. Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of these religious Pharisees in 5 and 6. Notice 
He confronted them personally. Then he answered them saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into the pit will not immediately pull, uh, pull him out on the Sabbath day? The implication being that they did so and would so. He rebukes them for their duplicity. They laid a heavy trip on the people, but they don't bother that. Do you think that's changed? When people get deceived and get caught up within the church and they think they're elite or politics or anything else, it's still the same. On every sphere of life, you have that. The point made was they would do so, notice the word immediately. The revised text has son rather than ox. Now, notice yet they were willing to allow this man with the dropsy to continue in this horrible condition due to the burdensome interpretation of their law, thinking themselves to be righteous and pleasing God. Wow. That's why Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 24, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You see, as a, as a good Pharisee, you, could, you had to bleed everything. had to be kosher. So if you're walking down the street or running or whatever, and you, a gnat goes down your throat, you're going to be gagging yourself to get that thing up. And you do so. But then he says, here you work all hard for this little thing you can't even see, and, and you swallow a camel, this huge, unclean animal. In other words... You do things that are so defiling to you, and here you're worried about this stinking little animal. Hypocrisy. Placing more value on an animal than a human life. Notice their plan backfired on them, and they could not answer him regarding these things. They could not. They were not able to answer the question posed to them. They would have exposed themselves even more. They would have dug a bigger hole. They had been humbled by Jesus once again. You remember Diotrephes in 3 John 9. He loved to have the preeminence. And John warns the church about that individual. Well, if you think that this Pharisee ancestors have died out, you're crazy. They exist in every church age within the church. People who just love to be looked at. People who love to parade how great they are. It's innate in sin nature in all of us. And if we as Christians don't reckon that dead, and if we feed it, and we go back to what we used to be, we will be worse in our latter state than at first, Peter tells us. There are always people who have evil intentions regarding others in life. Sometimes... Um, there are family members that um, love to set people up and to cause trouble in um, holidays or whatever it may be. I'm sure you've been there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you don't even want to go, oh, okay, I'm going to go and be a witness. But, you know, the minute you walk in, it's okay. They're just, looking, they're just waiting and whatever. At other times, uh, it's people at work who have it out for you, malign you, to slander you, whatever. See, we live in this world. We live among fallen people and even carnal Christians. This is the nature of man's fallen 
uh, heart. As Genesis tells us in Jeremiah 17:9, it's evil, deceitful, desperately wicked. It's evil continually from his youth. The um, responsibility of the believer is to honor God in his or her response, whatever that might be. And that's always a challenge to each of us every day and every occasion. Uh, sometimes God will have us to confront the lie and evil intent and expose the person. At other times, um, the situation may be so convoluted and so stacked against us that God would have us to trust him to defend us. And he promises to do a better job. <laughs> and then still at other times, God will allow us to let people believe the lie, the gossip, the slander, and to simply live our lives out to prove them wrong. Listen to First uh, Peter three fifteen through 17. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it be the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Remember Joseph. What they intended for evil, God turned out for good. And we don't understand how all that works. If you can explain to me how good your life is and how it works in your life, then it's probably not God. Because God works in ways that we don't understand. We trust Him in so many different ways that are far beyond our own understanding. We're looking to Him. So the person having evil intentions does not deceive God at all. Now notice the second section of the telescope comes out due to this first part. The person living by self-seeking ambitions come next, 7 through 14. In 7 through 11, the conduct of the guest at the dinner prompted Jesus to rebuke them. Jesus gave a parable in verse 7 there due to observing all the people that were seeking out the most honorable seats at the dinner. So he told a parable of those who were invited when he noted those how they chose the best places. You can imagine Jesus just sitting there just looking at these guys. <laughs> the parable, again, is one of the ambitious guests here. Remember, parable means to throw alongside. Para, alongside, boldly to throw. So parable is something... It's taking something you do know, putting it next to what you don't know. So in knowing what you did know, you'll know what you don't know. That's what a parable is. Okay? You put it side by side. In understanding this, you'll understand what you didn't understand. That's what a parable is. Okay? A sower went out to sow seed. Oh, I understand. Okay, the Word of God. So, same thing. Right next to each other. Now, Jesus pointed out the danger of exalting themselves at the end of verse 7 down to 9. Look at the end of 7 and 8. He warned them about seeking the best seeds out of pride. Jesus said to them, don't be presumptuous. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. 
the best place were the chief reclining places called triclinium, a table for three. We've seen this before. The center would be the chief seat and then the left and right followed. Now, these were the most prominent seats. Everybody's bidding them. Now, as invited guests, this was socially unacceptable and it was bad manners. When you are invited somewhere, they seat you. Unless there's now the modern day cards and that, okay? But otherwise, they will seat you. You don't just presume and sit up in front right next to the groom and say, Hey, dude, what's up? You don't do that. Notice Jesus gave the negative reason. Don't miss it. One word. Lest. You don't do this lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, by the host. The warning then about being humbled due to pride is given in nine. Jesus said to them, don't think you won't be confronted. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, <laughs> now you're on the spot. Here you walk right up to the front, you're sitting down, you're drinking this water and taking some olives and you're eating and all of a sudden two people approach you and uh, all eyes are on you because everybody knows what's going to happen. Jesus gave the negative consequence. Listen, give place to this man and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Oof. Shame means to feel dishonored and disgraced. Now you've got to Get up. As you get up, everybody's looking at you. And you've got to start walking towards the back as everybody follows you. <laughs> You're eating crow. Jesus then pointed out the benefit of having a modest view of self. He makes the contrast here. He instructed them to be humble. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, think soberly, sound-minded. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. And Jesus gives the positive reason so that when you, he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. This is much better. Jesus gave the positive consequence. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. What a contrast between being asked to go to the back or to be asked to come up front. <laughs> this is a wedding feast. Notice in 11, he instructed them on the true being taught in the parable. Here's the punchline. This is the central message of this parable. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's your punchline. A parable compares or contrasts, and it has one key verse as the central message. Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. 
Now with verse 12 through 14, the motive of the host. Now, he's dealt with the host. He was there. They set him up. He's watching how everybody's jockeying for best places. He gives a parable there. Now he turns and goes back to the host that invited him, the Pharisee. And he rebukes him. Verse 12, Jesus exposes his ulterior motive here for self-gain on earth by another parable of inviting guests to a dinner. He warned the Pharisee of personal social benefits. Listen to his words. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you invite a, uh, give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your, don't, don't, don't miss it, your friends, your brothers, your relatives, but you don't have your rich neighbors, just rich neighbors. Rich neighbors belong to themselves. They don't belong to anybody. <laughs> but there's a certain class of people here that he's naming. Nothing wrong with having people over. But the motive is what is wrong here, and Jesus points this out. His hospitality is limited and exclusive in kind and in class of the people he invites. And you know there are people like this all over. They just love to drop names. They just love to tell you who they ate dinner with last night, who they know, whose house they went to, and on and on and on. Notice then Jesus gave the negative reason. Here it is again, one word. Lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. The Pharisee was interested in being reciprocated, Jesus says. He revealed his heart. The Pharisee was not being benevolent, but calculating. Wow. Then notice in 13, Jesus now instructed him on being motivated by having compassion for the less fortunate on earth. He repeats the same scenario, but when you give a feast, and that implies there would be a lot of food. <laughs> he places, he replaces now the guest list. Notice, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. These correspond to the previous four categories. Listen how they, they, they fit. Your friends, the poor. Your brothers, the maimed. Your relatives, the lame. I like that. <laughs> Rich neighbors, the blind. Wow. Perspective, huh? Jesus exhorted him, notice, in verse 14, to seek a heavenly reward over an earthly one. The promise of Jesus is while on earth, and you will be blessed. The reason, because they cannot repay you. And the promise of Jesus in heaven is for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Wow. There can be no greater example of pride and being humble by pride than that of um, Haman the Agagite who entered the king's court and um, 
the king wanted to reward uh, Mordecai, the Jew, and he says, you know what should be done to the man who the king wants to honor? And he say, you know, Haman was saying, well, after who else would the Lord want to reward but me? He said, ah, take that man and, you know, put the best dress on him, the horse that the king has ridden, and have a man parade him saying, you know, this is the man that the king has allotted to honor. He says, hurry, go and do this to Mordecai, the Jew, who sins at the king gate, and leave nothing undone. Whoa. Humbled, and later hung on the very gallows he made for Mordecai. Hmm. You've lived long enough to see that happen to people? Wow. The entire world lives by um, the principle of pride and self-ambition and promotion. It's part of the fallen nature. Um, when it's catered to and, and, and focused on, it, 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 it goes out of control. All of us were part of the world and, um, before we were born again. But once we came to Christ, the scales fell off our eyes and we saw the deceptiveness and the destruction and the emptiness of, of pride. And none of us ever get rid of it. It's ever present and we have to put it to death. The arrogance of Hollywood stars, uh, successful businessmen, entrepreneurs, as well as the average person today, it seeped in price so much due to the culture and education, really not education, but indoctrination, as a result of self-esteem and politically correctness and the entitlement philosophy. Arrogant. There's no humility. Even, even uh, people who are on the street feel entitled and arrogant, tell you to give them things rather than humbly asking and even being... Uh, a shame. Listen to the Proverbs. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Proverbs 13.10 In the mouth of the fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Proverbs 14.3 Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before the fall, Proverbs sixteen eighteen. A proud and haughty man's scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride, Proverbs twenty one twenty four. And as you walk in this life, wherever it may be, and when you see someone like that as a Christian, and you're mature, and, and you're godly, and you, and, and you just look at you, you, you see it for all its ugliness. You don't exalt yourself over that because you know if it weren't for the grace of God, there you would be. But you see it so clearly and you see such arrogance and you just, it's, it's, it's terrible. The believer is not exempt from this, seeing we still have a sin nature residing in us. We can be carnal in our marriages rather than dying to self to enhance our marriage partner. We can be the focus of everything. We can be carnal in our pursuits rather than seeking God and His will, doing our own thing, and then say, oh yeah, God opened doors, God did this, but it's all lip service. 
we can be carnal and not be serving in the church and just saying, well, you know, I'm busy right now and, you know, I, I've worked hard. I, 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 I just, I've earned a little rest. Really? Wow. Listen to Proverbs again. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. Proverbs fifteen thirty three. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. Proverbs eighteen twelve. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Proverbs 29, 23. But he gives more grace, therefore, he says, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5. From Genesis to Revelation, there's the warning, the pride of man. That we should humble ourselves before God. The church is no exception, especially today with the arrogant political correctness, the ecumenicalism, and the emergent lukewarmness that has permeated the church. Redefining what a Christian is, ignoring repentance, transformation, and holiness opting out for information, reformation, at the exclusion of transformation. Wow. Redefining what the church is, declaring it to be an organization rather than an organism. Jesus asked the church daily such as should be saved. We don't. Redefining the gospel for the sake of evangelism under the banner of love alone. No, God is very specific. He says, when you preach the gospel, you call out for repentance of sinners. And you name sin. And you make judgments. And you give options. And you give the invitation. And each person makes a decision. Listen to Second Peter 2, 1 and 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring in on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So they're in the midst of the church in the latter days, and they have great followings. We see it among us many ways. You see Joel seeing. What judgment that man is going to have as he just motivates people positive, doesn't deal with sin, uses the Bible, names God's name, and just amazing. The judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Wow. Second Timothy 4, 3 through 4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Sound means health-giving, wholesome doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers that they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. We see what's going on in the church today. All 
the air that's being taught, all the heresies being taught, and people are going for it. The parallel of political correctness, of non-judgmentalism in the world has a parallel in the church today. And it's happened faster in the church than in the world in the last four, five years. Listen to Psalm 75, 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one, he exalts another. you believe that? Are you always self-promoting yourself? Are you pushing? Nothing wrong with hard work, being diligent, but the self-promotion, this, this endeavor to just be ambitious at whatever cost and apart from God and, and despite God and not sometimes even using God, say, oh yeah, God's in this. Wow. The person living by self-seeking ambitions are obeyed by God. Notice the third section of the telescope comes out from this one. The person rejecting the gospel invitation, 15 through 24. In 15 to 20, the unexpected declaration that came from a person prompted Jesus to give another parable. He gives these three parables. In 15, the person expressed the blessedness of the one partaking in the kingdom age, hearing what Jesus told the host in verse 14. He was sitting at the table, notice, in verse 15. So possibly, and most likely, he was a Pharisee and a lawyer also. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, these things that he needed to be more concerned about the reward of the, at the resurrection, not on earth, he said to Jesus, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, assuming he would be there, perhaps, the criticism and judgment is against these religious Pharisees. I don't think this one was any exception. Now, people make different observations. They say, this guy, these are just religious platitudes. And other people, other people say, well, you know, I think he's the only one that got the message. But the parable is against these Pharisees. Now, the Jews were waiting for the kingdom age. They were waiting for the Messiah. But... They were refusing to enter in through the only door, the only gate, Jesus Christ. Yet they were assuming they were going to be there. Blessed is the man. How many people are assuming they're going to be in heaven? Because they go to church. Because they carry a Bible. Because they do some work in the church or maybe missions or maybe they even give great amount of money. And then that day Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Wow. The Lord Jesus then presented the way to enter the kingdom of God through the gospel invitation by a parable of the great supper. But it would be rejected. He tells them right up front. 16 through 20. Now there is a similar parable of a king who gave a wedding feast for his son in Matthew 22, 1 through 10. But this is not it. Uh, this section is all unique of Luke. It's similar in message but different. Now notice 16 through 17. The Jews 
has a high privilege of having been promised the kingdom to them. More given, more required. We've gone over that principle. The Pharisee who spoke out uh, is addressed. So, he's addressed the guests as they're jockeying for seats and everything. Um, He's addressed the host. Now he speaks to the one who gave this proclamation. (laughs) Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. The certain man is God the Father. The prophets had been sent in the first call. Notice he says, And sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited. All day long, God sent his prophets to prepare Israel. All along. The promise, the invitation. They were looking. They were supposed to be looking. And then he says, Come for all things are now ready. This is the second call. John the Baptist broke the 400 years of silence. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I am not the Messiah. But there's one among you whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to loosen. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit on fire. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare you the way of the Lord. The Roman roads were prepared. One language that unified the whole world known of that day. The Roman Empire. Greek. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman under the law. Right on time. Roads to travel. One language to be understood by everybody. The gospel could travel. Messiah right on time. Now notice the various excuses come. But they were a great insult to God. This was the consistent response of the Jews. They had received the invitations and were expected to come. But they had a lot of lame excuses as many people do. Up front, he says, but they all were, were, were with one accord began to make excuses. If I had a dollar for every excuse I've ever heard non-believers and Christians give for why they didn't obey God or accept the gospel, I would be a wealthy man. The first said to him in verse 18, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excuse. What man buys property without looking at it first? He'd be an idiot or a liar. Maybe he's both. (laughs) This is financial gain, even though it's a lie. You see where his heart is. And there are a lot of people that rejected the kingdom and the gospel because of financial gain. It's what they live for. They don't want to be interrupted in life. They don't want to get involved with the things of God, let alone give money. Are you kidding? Another said, 19, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused once again. What man buys oxen without trying them? He's buying them to make a living, to work his farm. Once again, he's lying or he's a fool. 
But there are people like that that all they do is work, work, work. And that's why they don't come to church. And that's why they don't accept the gospel. That's why they're never around. Well, all the money in the world is not going to help you when it comes to eternity. And all the money that you give to your family if you're not in the work of God means absolutely nothing to God. Absolutely nothing. We are to live by priorities now, ladies and gentlemen. When I got born again, I got rid of a whole bunch of stuff. So I had a lot of time. It's just real simple. God knows when He saves you, you're going to have ample time to be part of the church and to do the things of God because now you're not doing the things of the world. It's real simple. And still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. The literal Greek says, she won't let me. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> um, what man passes up a free meal when you're first married? Again, you get, you get the parable. None of them had a legitimate excuse. They didn't want anything to do with God. They wanted to give an appearance, they did. They didn't want nothing to do with the Messiah. But they wanted, and they said they're going to be in the kingdom. Wow. Interesting thing is that Jewish young men were exempt one year from war or the service in the army if they just married a wife to stay home and just take care of her and make her happy for one year. Deuteronomy 24, 5 through 11. I think that's a great principle. You know what that would do for our nation if that was a policy? Do you know how many marriages would survive that don't survive military weddings? And those who serve us best to protect us? Amazing. But all these excuses are lame. Notice the rejection of the gospel by the Jews would keep them from entering the kingdom of God. Then according to the parable, he's going to bring the hammer down on them. 21 through 24. In 21, the master hearing of their insulting excuses commanded his servant. The master heard the news so that servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master became enraged. The master of the house being angry. The master commanded his servant, saying to him, Go out quickly into the streets, the lanes, and the cities, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. So now the four groups are interpreted for us. They are the humble Jews, those that will be open, and with extension, I'm sure, the Gentile. But not these religious leaders who thought they were elite and they had a, a, a sure in. Wow. The servant reported back to the master in 22 and 23. In 22, the servant said, there are still, there's still ample room. Master, it is done as you commanded. And still, there's room. And so the master commanded his servant to entreat more to come in. Listen to him. 
Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways, the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be full. Those that the Pharisees looked down on in the alleyways and the streets and the regular people. Compel them. This word compel in this context does not mean force them, but rather to persuade and convince them by sharing of God's love, the gospel. God doesn't force any of us to go to heaven. He compels us by his love. When we realize the love of God that he gave his only son, and we realize how much he loves us, that's why rejecting the gospel is one of the greatest sins. It's a rejection against love. Absolute pure love. Augustine used this verse in the Catholic Church to force and compel and coerce people to come into the Catholic Church. You had no choice. And he used this to justify it. <laughs> God doesn't force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to. He tries to compel you by his love that you might receive the invitation. Willingly, openly. Here comes the key verse, the punchline of the parable to communicate the truth of the parable in 24. The authority is that of Jesus to the Jews. Don't miss it. For I say to you. The words are true and binding in judgment of the Jew and anyone thereafter. That none of those who, those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Whoa. Nine times the word invite appears. None is excluded. It's under grace. The person that's lost is lost by rejecting the gospel. Not because God predestined you, as Calvinists tell you, to damnation. Because you have chosen the place of damnation for all eternity. I didn't do that. You did by rejecting heaven. You do that by rejecting the gospel. You do that by insulting the love of God. The spirit of grace. Their sin was that of unbelief. Refusing to believe the gospel. Of salvation. Wow. You remember Paul before Agrippa and Bernice. And um, he was making his defense before them. They were examining him. And at one point Agrippa says, uh, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul says, I would to God that all of you were all together as I am. Except for these chains. Almost persuade me. You cannot be persuaded to go to heaven. But you can be persuaded to go to hell. You must be convicted of your sin and repent. And you will go to heaven. But if you reject the gospel, you will be persuaded by deception to spend eternity in hell. And the lake of fire. 
Wow. There will be um, no legitimate excuse on Judgment Day for not having accepted the gospel and repented from sin by any person. The invitation has been sent out, by the way, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in should not perish, but everlasting life. The servant that calls every sinner is the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, John 16.8. Men don't do that. The Holy Spirit does that through the gospel. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Second Peter 3.9. Yet God knows that not all will come because... They reject the gospel. There are many reasons given by sinners in attempt to excuse themselves for not believing the gospel, but none of them are accepted by God. Some say, well, I had a horrible father and mother, and I, I just carry that over. You know, I, I have a bad view of father. Listen, you're not that stupid. You, you're going to compare your father to God? It's a lie that's been repeated and taught by educators and psychologists. If you have any, any amount of brains, you know that God is greater than your father. And you would trust God before you would trust your father who was evil. It's real simple. I was abused and neglected. Then run to God. He's your only comfort. I was hurt. I trusted Christians. They ripped me off. Welcome to the club. They didn't save you. I didn't get adequate answers from Christians about creation and dinosaurs and all that. And, that, that's, that's, and that's why you want to go to hell? Interesting. It could be financial gain, work, or family that keeps you from the kingdom. You fill in the blank. Listen how John closes the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. He says, um, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. By grace. There are many who are born again and have many excuses for not serving in the church. Man, you are the high priest of your home to lead your wife and your children. You are to be running the church. The church is to be run by men as example for their wives and their children. Ladies, you are your husband's help me, the completion, to work one with him. Be going in the same direction. To be able to fulfill and accomplish all that God has for both of you. Your children are watching you and listening to you to see what it is that you believe. If you make decisions based on the weather... Today's a sunny day. We're going to the beach. Nothing wrong with the beach. But if you're not consistent in coming to church regularly, don't be surprised when your children get to 8, 9, 12 years old and say, I don't want to go to church today. 
Well, I don't want to go to church anymore. You're the example. And if you're the right example, when those objections come, you remind them that you're the parent. You pay the bills. They sleep in your bed. They eat your food. There's no problem in my house. Never has been. The person rejecting the gospel invitation is rejected by God, ladies and gentlemen. Make no mistake of that. It breaks the heart of God. Luke has presented to us these three groups who will not enter the kingdom of God by their own choosing. The primary audience is the Jews. The principle runs into the Gentiles. The person having evil intentions does not deceive God. The person living by self-seeking ambitions are abased by God. And the person rejecting the gospel invitation is rejected by God. Man, clear and to the point, clarity. That's how Jesus taught all the time. You never had any questions. What did he mean? Sometimes people tell me, Xavier, tell us what you really mean. I don't have time to mess around. In geometry, I learned that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That's the way I teach. Some of you can handle me. Some of you can't. It's up to you. I know not everybody's going to like me. It's okay. But I'm getting older. I'm getting shorter in my time. Jesus is coming. The world's going to hell. Why would I want to beat around the bush? Jesus never did. I worked to be like our master, right? Lord, thank you for your loving goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you give us wisdom for our day. We pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know you, Lord, you would speak to them. Lord, they understand your love for them. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. God wants you to turn to Him, to forgive you, give you a new heart, a new life. It's through Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. If you believe He's God who became man, died for your sins, then right now you can ask Him to forgive you. It's called repentance. This is your prayer to Him. Right where you sit, you can say this prayer, and He will save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.